Make Your Fire podcast. Content discussed on this podcast is general in nature. Please seek specific advice from qualified professionals. Now, let's start with the quote of the week. All external expectations, all pride, all fear of embarrassment or failure, these things just fall away in the face of death, leaving only what is truly important. Remembering that you are going to die is the best way I know to avoid the trap of thinking you have something to lose. You are already naked. There is no reason not to follow your heart. Hello, listeners. Welcome back to another episode of Friday Wrap. Gosh, it's Friday again, and we're already in the middle of March. I really can't believe how, um, how 2021 has already almost gone for one quarter of the whole year. It just feels like, you know, uh, we've only just literally got back to start recording about a month or two ago. So, you know, things, things really fly when you enjoy yourself, I guess, put it that way, especially when, when property market is booming like crazy at the moment with, when everyone is seeing. So, um, but yeah, today, look, you know, I've, um, we've, um, we've got John with here with me uh, today. So, hey, John, how are you doing? I'm well, uh, Dave. I've got nothing else to do, so, <laughs> so I thought I'd jump on. No, look, uh, great to be here as always, and thank you for having me. Uh, yeah, no, it's always uh, good, to, good to have you on the show uh, to, to join the roundtable discussions. Um, but we are missing our best buddy, Jazz, today. Um, he is a bit occupied. I'm sure it's uh, something, obviously, with kids or something. So, you know, difficult to juggle, juggle around when you've got uh, family commitments. So we'll give him an excuse past this time. But, uh, you know, certainly we need, to, uh, we need to make sure that he comes back on next week to, uh, uh, to chip in and about all the good content that we have. So... But yeah, look, you know, what better way to kick off this week to then to start off with talking about what the current property market is 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 currently doing? You know, it's um, I have to say, I mean, you know, I'm I'm actually in the market looking at buying at the moment for my own occupier. So you know, I've been very very, I think it's, I've always been very open in terms of my own um, strategies and my own purchase journey. So wouldn't wouldn't mind sharing that with uh, our listeners. But I am in the market. I am looking around Sydney at the moment, scouting to see where's any opportunities for me to be able to upgrade my own home. But at the same time, just like everyone else, I'm constantly getting outbid. I'm constantly getting frustrated. I'm constantly getting offers, not, not being accepted as such. So it is an interesting time. I don't know, John, I think, uh, you know, let's, let's have a chat about that from an investor and, uh, and, and a purchaser uh, perspective, you know. Um, I know you've been buying for your clients as well uh, in the current market. And uh, there's certainly some good deals as, as according to what you've been fetching up for your clients. But, and we touched on this last week. You know, for us to be able to get something in today's market, we almost guarantee to have to pay tomorrow's prices. Do you agree with that at the moment, John? I think that's I think that's something you ought to be prepared to do, particularly if you're looking to buy a house yep. rather than a unit. I think the the market is, as I said, very macro heavy. I think that most indicators are moving up so all sorts of different properties are going up but they're going up at different rates and if you're in the market for a detached house uh yeah you need to you need to be prepared to pay next year's price yeah it sounds yeah. like it's if it feels no, no one likes to do it but at this at the moment um the market's really really aggressive Mm. And I think in particular, because the areas I'm looking at is around, you know, North Shore, uh, the Hills District, um, you know, the lower North Shore. I think these are the areas that most people are having a lot of competition on. Um, and it's no surprise that I'm seeing, you know, um, auction clearances, well, auction prices where 
some of them goes two hundred, three hundred thousand dollars, or even more above what the original price guide uh, is. So you know, I think. But is it purely fueled by owner occupiers uh, in the current market? I guess um... the data suggests that's true. So if you look at a like a graph of the different type of buyers, so owner occupiers are going vertical. Mm. But I think, as we all know, that some people. Um, what we can say is it's largely first home buyers, uh, particularly taking that sort of middle uh, price point out of the market. But as we know that some people uh, are really investors or in, they intend to be investors, but they go in as first home buyers and then maybe two years later switch over. So their broader their broader ambition is to be a um, an investor, but they go in as first home buyers, and that's totally fine. Um, so what what we haven't seen the investors come in yet officially. No. No. So I think that it's mainly owner occupiers. I think that kind of ties into the fact that we're seeing family homes boom. Uh, it's like a house boom, uh, but it's pretty broad. It's pretty broad. Broad. I mean, the, I think the I think the investors are getting scared off at the nominal yields. So at the moment, most most places in Sydney certainly houses are yielding under 3%. So it, it looks, let's say, you know, the average house in Sydney is 25 to 2.8% uh, yield. And, and ostensibly, that's a terrible investment return. Um, but the thing is, most people are borrowing P&I at uh, 1.9 to 2% or 2.1%, in which case is actually the yield is relatively good. Uh, so the, the investors will come back very soon, I think, because I think investors are starting to get FOMO. I mean, I spoke to someone yesterday who was uh, very nervous that they were being left behind. And, um, and, and she was saying to me that her greatest fear is that she would just buy anything just to get in. Uh, so, yeah, and she was an investor. So That's, that's a scary thought at the moment, isn't it? And I think it's, mm. it's really strong of fear of missing out and it's starting to populate not just through first-home buyers and own-occupiers, but also starting to spread across the investors as they started to see and hear the news media saying house prices are going bonkers and, you know, interest rates are record lows and they're going to be this low for the next couple of years. Um, and, you know, this week we also seen Westpac dropping their long-term fixed rates as well. I think five years, three, four to five years, you know, all under 3% at this point in time. And that gives an indicator to say, hey, you know, you can get money for this long for so cheap. Um, and therefore, you know, that probably incentivizes investors to have another think about, okay, well, if I can get cheap money, then does it make sense for me to look at potentially investing in residential areas? Like you said, you know, the houses are probably not going to be um, returning a good yield. However, at the same time, um, because of the low rates, that kind of offsets that investment return to a degree. And, um, you know, a good quality asset, you know, have that lifestyle factor is pretty much almost guaranteed to a degree that there will always be demand because uh, mm. given how COVID has completely, completely changed the way how we all work, how we all commute, how we all live, right? So, which is why I think this boom, this time around is not necessarily centralised because we know how in the previously the boom was always from Sydney CBD or Parramatta CBD or these mini CBDs and then start to populate and start to start to get towards ripple out towards the returning suburbs. Mm. I think I don't think this time it's primarily driven from a CBD distance perspective, but instead it's driven from a lifestyle 
you know, the ones around the ones around where you've got good cafes, the ones got good um, shopping centres and that kind of stuff, um, and properties, houses sitting on good, you know, vacant land blocks with uh, good amenities, access to lifestyle factors, you know, trees, bush, that kind of stuff. That's the type of houses that at the moment I'm seeing fetching a lot of um, high prices where people are competing against those, which is quite interesting. Yeah. It is It is interesting. That's what happened last time in the boom in okay. the the 2010s, I think that's the way to put it. Yep. Uh, there was, it, it, it did the opposite ripple effect. It started in the outskirts of Sydney mm. and it worked its way in. And, and so by 2017, when it was sort of wrapping up, it, 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 it the ripple went inward rather than outward. And so it finished in the inner locations. Um, this, um, this boom, I think it's still centered on the premium market. Um, and detached houses. Yes. So I actually think that the inner ring suburbs are doing well as long as it is a detached house. Um, and but it is pretty broad. So you know, if the further out you go, the further out you go, I, I've actually noticed that the boom isn't quite as um, strong, except when then you go to the central coast mm. or to the you know sort of southern highlands and, and places like that, which are really doing very well. That's the that's the real lifestyle factors that people are yeah, looking for. Is when they try to get the best bang of their buck, uh, yeah. you know, something underneath a mill with uh, good access to beaches and, and lifestyles, all that kind of stuff. But um, yeah, but that leads to an interesting point because you know we are seeing last month the 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 data is saying that uh, last month alone, I think capital cities have increased uh, about two percent in terms of the capital in terms of the prices, uh, if I'm not yeah. mistaken, around that across the capital cities. Um, and if we see another 2% this month, um, which is at the moment, it's looking like very likely, how long do you think and how sustainable do you think that this is be able, this will be able to continue? Yeah, that's, that's the question everyone's asking. And I'm not sure if I've got an alarm going off, a car alarm going off outside. Uh, it's the, that's the big question. You know, when does the music stop? Uh, there are a couple of different, views on this. I think um, the RBA came out this week and said that um, some sort of prudential regulation is imminent. Yep. Uh, but I, I believe that there was a, a presentation from Bill Evans from uh, Westpac, who's one of the sort of top economists in Australia, certainly the longest serving banking economist in Australia. So certainly someone with some credibility. And he his view is that they're, they're not going to start regulating this until probably late next year, early 2023. So maybe, so it's, it's like two very credible sources, kind of insiders, the RBA and then Westpac, and their views are quite different. Um, David, I know you've sort of read through an article about the RBA's perspective. Did, did you want to sort of tease out anything from that? Sure. Yeah, no, no, I'll, I'll give a I'll give a few high level key points in terms of what uh, RBA and uh, Governor Philip Lowe has has stated. So, um, look, ultimately, um, he admitted that low interest rates are driving up house prices. Number one, um, and he also said that the the RBA will not adjust its policy based on the housing market. Okay, so I think the price of the housing market is never what they're intending to to muck around with. So you know that's that's a market where the supply and demand and the, and and basically how much determined by how much people are willing to pay. So they don't step in that area. And he also stated that there are various other tools which can they can use 
to keep health prices in check. Okay, so there's there's certainly other things like we've seen in um, around 2015, 2016, where obviously APRA stepped in, curbed lending, and all of a sudden that's why we're seeing 2017, 2018, 2019, we had a bit of pullback on house prices across all, just from lending perspective. They also did mention that the RBA and the other financial regulators at the moment are watching very carefully on a market to see if the home lending restrictions are necessary. So in other words, you know, they are monitoring carefully to say, okay, well, are the banks doing what they used to do? Are they, are they still playing? Are they still lending responsibly? Or are they trying to take uh, this advantage, uh, you know, in the moment where everyone and, and their man, basically just the man and the dog wants to get a property, <laughs> are they using, are they capitalizing on this opportunity to try to do a bit of a, I guess, I don't know, irresponsible lending, as per se, um, you know, and is it starting to go a bit beyond control? So, so ultimately, I think, you know, as a mortgage broker, I can see where his point is coming from, uh, for people to be able to purchase a property, they need lending. Um, so it's all to do with lending in, in the current environment. And, you know, um, I think in this article uh, that um, they published, um, uh, they, they also mentioned that the RBA will not raise rates to slow housing boom, okay? Just because if the housing boom keeps going up and, and prices keeps going up, RBA will not actually raise interest rates just because of that, okay? They do want to make sure that, there's enough employment. So they want to keep it around the four to 4.5%. That's when that's in their definition, the full employment kicks in. When they've hit about four and 4.5%, that's when they expect there will be upward pressure on inflation. And when there's upward pressure on inflation and people's wage growth started to go up, started to catch up, that's when they will start to consider about raising interest rates. Okay. So that's a good few key point summaries in terms of the, the article, but I think he's he's actually going in a slightly different direction to what Bill Evans was saying, to your point, John. You know, he's actually kind of go, look, we're not promising that, you know, the, the lending curve may not come back earlier than 2022. He's saying we are monitoring carefully at the moment. If the lending does present itself to be an issue, then we will step in and we will basically uh, take, take actions there. Mm. That's the way I read it, um, it's, which is slightly different to what Bill Evans is is, um, is kind of projecting. But all in all, you know, it's, um, it all ties back to the fundamentals of economy, which is the right thing to do. You know, we need to make sure that people are unemployed, keeping the unemployment rate low, um, and also making sure that uh, there's adequate wage inflation so that people's income are catching up. And that's the normal, what a normal cycle do, right, John? Like house prices goes up, people think it's too expensive and, and it's going to stagger for a while and then people's wage will then eventually catch up to be able to afford that and the house prices go up again. It's a cycle. Yeah, that, that's right. So the reason I think that they're not going to intervene for a while, and I kind of mm. come down on Bill Evans' side that, that okay. this, is, this is further out than we think. Um, regulation probably late next year, interest rate rises probably 2024, mm. something like that. And I think the reason is is because they've partly stated it, or at least the US Federal Reserve has, but the RBA to a lesser extent, but they need and want inflation. And the best way to get inflation is to let, uh, there, let there be a housing market boom and allow there to be what I call sort of trickle-down inflation. So you let house prices... Uh, House prices boom, uh, you get essentially wealthy asset holders who borrow against 
the the newfound equity in their homes and they start spending. So they're not going to choke this off because the economy is actually, the underlying economy is extremely fragile. And the easiest way to get consumer spending back is to pump up house prices and allow asset owners to spend against their their equity. Uh, so they're gonna, they'll let it run. Um, I think the most interesting thing from that RBA article is something you said right at the beginning, David, which was that they're not their their objective is not to manage the housing market. Now they they will keep their eye on it, but the housing market is just one market in Australia. There are equity markets, there's commodity markets, there's there's all sorts of stuff, right? And so while like it's a passion and a pastime for Australians to look at the housing market, it's still just one market. And the the objective of the central banks is broader than just managing housing market. In fact, it's probably not to manage the housing market at all. So don't, don't be surprised if they let a housing boom rip and not do anything until that boom converts into consumer prices. And that's when they'll step in. Mm. And and that's probably a couple of years after the house boom. Yeah. I'm underway. Yeah. Yeah. So in terms of that, so so I guess you're you're kind of siding with Bill Evans and kind of say, okay, well, I reckon this uh this run will run towards about 2022. So we've got still got about another year-ish to go, basically. So here's what I think will happen to the housing market. I think that, <laughs> so by the way, uh, listeners, like forecasts are always wrong. <laughs> kind of, this is just kind of my musings, uh, what, you know, in moments of solitude. It did call it's out the bottom last October. Yeah, I, <laughs> so, so, I was going to give you some credit and then you, and then you started putting disclaimers up. <laughs> no, I, I, think it, I think it runs for another four years, right? I four think years? this okay. is about 2025. And, and wow. some years will be stronger than others, but I think upward generally speaking, for, for until about mid-decade. And I think the first two years, so this year and next year, and, and don't forget it actually started kind of last year, but yeah. the first two years until the end of 2022, I think will be um, fueled solely by cheap credit. So low, low interest rates, uh, central bank inflation, th- mm-hmm. that, that will be the driver for the first two years. But that'll only take you so far because eventually yields get so low that real estate becomes unattractive. What happens from 2023 through to the end of this cycle, which will be, let's say, end of 2024, mid-2025, will be that immigration will start up again. So there will be a second burst of higher property prices when rents start to catch up. And in 2023-24, when rents start to go up, immigration's in full flight and all that sort of stuff, that will be when the RBA start to get a bit worried. And I, I feel like... While it's like an interest rate bubble, the central banks probably feel like they're in control of that. So that's 2021, 2022. But then when it's immigration-driven, 2023 and 2024, I feel that's when they get nervous because they can't put that genie back in the bottle quite Mm. so easily. And by that stage, when you've got a highly indebted real estate market, highly indebted society in general, putting interest rates up to, to stop a housing boom is really really damaging so you can cause a lot of problems just by putting interest rates up by a half a percent or one percent and so they're going to be the longer this boom runs the harder it is going to be to raise interest rates raise interest rates without causing a lot of problems so yeah that's where i think that's where i kind of i think i think this boom will run in two stages one the first stage will be interest rates the second stage will be population growth 
Yeah, that is an interesting perspective because, uh, yeah, we certainly think that the immigration, once they kick in, will um, will definitely have an effect, especially on the on the rental market for Sydney and Melbourne at the moment, who's absolutely suffering right now, right? So for units, that is. Uh, houses are going very, very strong, as we all know. So, <laughs> yeah, no, but that's, uh, that's interesting. So 2024, I guess um, for our listeners, they can say if they, if they heard it first from John, from JC again on Spark Your Fire podcast. <laughs> don't, don't, don't take it to the bank. But, uh, <laughs> but David, what, what do you see? You're, you're kind of you're right up um, close to the fire. What what, are, what type of clients are you getting at the moment? Are they are they investors and like where are they buying? And is, is yeah. there a sort of a theme that you see? Yeah, look, I, 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 I'm kind of in the similar boat as you. A lot of owner occupiers obviously looking at getting in, but eventually it's going to get turned into an investment property. Um, okay, so so the ultimate goal is your investment, but uh, you know want to take advantage of those own buyers and all the grants that they're doing. So so data would show up as an owner occupier loan, um, even though down the track it may potentially become an investor property investment property instead. Um, I am starting to see investors starting to come back a bit as well. You know, uh, investors coming back and say, okay, well, how can we take out equity? How can we borrow a bit more? Um, and to some extent, just like what you're saying, the FOMO has kicked in with investors as well. You know, they're like, how can we get how can we get lending quickly? Because every week I'm losing X amount of dollars. Um, you know, and I feel like I'm, I'm missing out opportunities at the moment on one of the biggest opportunities in my life. And I said, well, <laughs> there's always going to be opportunities at the end of the day. Um, and I think that's actually quite scary because yes, lending. Lending plays a big part, and uh, because of the low interest rate, because of the way how banks at the moment adjust their serviceability calculators, they do allow you to borrow a lot more uh, in comparison to before. Um, okay, so um, not for not for not for professional investors. So I'm not talking about you know those ones who's probably already got two or three properties um, and wanting to continue build on that basis. No, we're not seeing too much changes on that, but just purely on as a whole, because the assessment rate has dropped previously on 7%. Now it's dropped down to about 5 point something percent. You know, some lenders are even high four. So that plays a big part of differences in terms of what people can lend. So investors on general can still squeeze in a bit more. Um, and this we're talking about maybe first time investors, you know, buying their first or second investment properties. Um, they can still basically get a bit more lending in comparison to say two years ago or three years ago, just because of that change. But mainly it's driven by, as you said, it's the own occupiers. Um, they are the one that benefit the most from lending perspective in this run, you know, yeah, because mm-hmm. they can go all the way up to that, utilizing that lowest assessment rate, whereas most investors, you know, they're probably getting an interest rate of around 3%-ish uh, on a variable rate. So you add another 25 on top, they're not going to be able to hit the 5% assessment rate. They'll be around 5.5, 5.6, but still that's better than 7% assessment rate. So again, they're being they're being they also take a bit of advantage, but not to a whole, not to the same level as what the owner occupies are getting. So and that still seems to be the trend at the moment that uh, that we're seeing. On this, um, there's been drastic changes. We are seeing that banks are starting to get a bit more um, appetite in terms of investor lending because they are starting to advertise a bit more on discounts. Uh, there's been a few banks coming out and say, you know, we've been dropping our investor rates, want to get more investor clients on board and wanting, want you to basically get finance through us. So that is going to be quite um quite interesting to see whether that's going to lure enough investors out of woodwork and uh, and, and start looking at um, uh, pumping up the prices again. Mm. 
just just I, I guess a footnote on the real estate thing. Um, yep. I probably should have put it earlier, but um, as look, I, I buy and buy property all the time. And one thing I'd suggest is that in this market, the tip is that it's not necessarily about the price, it's about speed. Mm. So you need to be, there is a sweet spot for a pre-auction offer and we can go into that another time, but um, but your priority needs to be speed rather than these crazy big offers. Yes. Because actually that will, that will be what, and you know, you'll get talked up and all those things will happen, but speed is so much more important than anything else. So I'd say be decisive and um, be realistic but be fast. That's yeah. the, main, the main tip. That is a great tip, John, and I think uh, our listeners will definitely appreciate that uh, in, in terms of that, yeah, because in a booming market, and I'm sure a lot of people probably haven't gone through many booming cycles, uh, um, they're, they're probably looking at, okay, well, what are the key elements? How can, I, how, can I, how can I make my offer more attractive in the current environment? So as you said, speed is a key importance here. Um, and also you got to, you know, there's no more mucking around in terms of, okay, well, I don't want to let them know my top prices, you know, to a degree, you kind of have to go in and go, here's what I have. And here's a strong, here's a strong offer. I know it's a strong offer. Can I, can I get seller to take this property off the market? Cause when it gets to the auction, usually that's when it gets out of control. That's my, uh, that's kind of my personal experience. So mm-hmm. like you said, the faster you can go in with a strong offer, with a strong conditions, um, the more chances you're able to kind of, get um, agents to um, uh, to help you on and to agree on that. And I think that, um, I mean, I've been monitoring the, um, obviously the North Shore, the Northern parts, uh, the Hills District market. Um, there's been a bit more supply that I'm starting to see coming out as well, a bit more stock. So um, hopefully, hopefully that will reduce a bit of our, you know, a dampen a little bit on the price growth that we've been seeing just because there was a pure supply shortages in the last couple of months and everyone and a lot of demand. Um, so who knows? Maybe in the next few months, as more supplies come through, um, that um, that may potentially um, uh, means that um, we won't see we won't see as much crazy offers as uh, as it's been throwing around. So, but that leads to a very good point because I think our uh, one of our next topic that we talk about is uh, CBA actually released a bit of forecast uh, on. Um, the job keeper and its impact by the end of this month, because we all know that the job keeper is going to end on the end of this March, March 2021. Um, and there's been a few different, I guess, our listeners cannot see the graph, um, but they are estimating up to about $110,000, uh, sorry, 110,000 people that could have lost their job. Okay. And they broadly classified it uh, as according to different type of uh, risk industries. So the high risk industries are transport, art and recreation, accommodation and food services. So with these high risk industries, what they're anticipating is there's going to be close to about 70,000 people or 70,000 jobs that could potentially be lost by the end of March, 2021. Okay, so that's the high risk one. That, those are the areas where people really need to be careful, right? Like, so if you're working in the transport, if you're working in the arts recreation, if you're working in the accommodation and food services, you need to be prepare yourself. Okay, so um, you know you, the, the, we don't we don't know. Um, we're certainly hoping that our listeners are not being impacted, but you never know how your employer is actually doing. So, you know have a buffer um, for yourself. And if you're looking at purchasing properties, you might, you might have to have a, um, you know, double check just to make sure that 
um, this is still a feasible option um, and how easy is it for you in the current market? If you are being made redundant, unfortunately, then what is your plan B? What is your backup plan? So that's the high-risk industry. John, any thoughts on that? My broader thoughts on that is that I actually don't, I don't think that this stuff is going to go away. I mean, a little, a little sort of sinister part of me thinks that there's that a lot of these programs are sort of Trojan horses to get to universal basic income. You probably have heard those sorts of things before. I think there's something to to that. I think that, and I think that would be foolish, but it's it's entirely possible that these things will stick around for such a long time that it's universal basic income by another name. Maybe, maybe not. Um, but I do think that they, these things will get rolled over. So I don't think that those things are going away. Um, they might get tinkered with, but I think generally speaking, it's a new form of welfare that will be around for a little bit longer. Mm. Yeah, and as a matter of fact, I think um, Scott Morrison just announced that uh, there's going to be cheap flies and all that kind of stuff that's, uh, that's being announced, right, to help Australia to to stimulate the local travel economy for holiday accommodations that's uh, kind of in Cairns. And when's the last time you took your holiday, mate? Um, <laughs> Getting ready to snatch up one of those? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so um, you know that could be a separate form, and I don't know whether whether transport kind of um, that's uh, that probably means that like aviation is probably being classified under transport. I'm assuming that's probably one of the main ones that get hit the hardest. So, as you accurately pointed out, yes, within transport, there's other sectors. You know, the Uber, the Uber Eats, and that kind of stuff would probably be doing okay because that's going to be continuing. However, the aviation sector at the moment is obviously definitely suffering, and that's probably where majority of the JobKeeper recipients are receiving that money. I know we've been, we're trapped in New South Wales like Meghan Markle <laughs> in, in the palace. You know, like <laughs> victims, just terrible, just ter- trapped. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I know. That's the other big news of the week. We probably should skip over it. <laughs> I, I un- unless, unless you like a bit of a gloss and glam, that uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is one of the biggest. Work. Except uh, it's nothing to do with investment, unfortunately. So <laughs> <laughs> leave it for another day. Maybe we'll get Jess to cover this segment. <laughs> Um, all right, so that's the higher risk. And then we've got the medium risk. I'll quickly cover that. So uh, the medium risk sectors are like the retail trades, the education, the rental and hiring um, businesses. So again, they're estimating about 18,000 job losses here um, across those um, across that medium risk industries. Um, and then lastly, followed by the low risk industry, which is kind of like the wholesale trade, the healthcare um, construction um, okay, and uh, professional, scientific, and technical services. So, across those uh, four sectors, they're estimating around the twenty-three thousand uh, estimated job losses. So, all up, you know, the the high risk it's it's catered for about what seventy over one hundred and ten. That's what a good 70 percent of the whole thing. Yeah. So, and I think it's still mainly aviation. Um, it's probably the one that gets suffered the most because, you know, like we're still not able to fly at the moment um, on the massive level as pre-COVID um, and jets are still grounded. So, yeah, um, it is a staggering figure, I have to say, um, you know, looking looking at that. So, uh, but I think it, it gives it gives an important picture. You know, you can, you got to always be careful. you got to always have that buffer. Um, that's probably the main key uh, lessons I'm out of it. Mm. Any thoughts, John? 
Uh, well, I, I mean, I think retail jobs will come back more or less. I don't think they'll. I don't think anything will go back to 2019. But mm. I think retail jobs will come back, and I think that's because a lot of the stimulus is targeted towards consumer spending. So I think yes, retail will come back. Education, the education segment as a medium risk job sector is really interesting to me. Um, and the question comes down. So I think that at like the secondary level um, and primary school level, obviously that those jobs aren't at risk. But it's obviously international students not coming yes. to our universities. Tertiary and education, I mainly. I don't know if that's going to come back. <laughs> I don't know if it's going to come back. So that, that that's a big question mark for me against that. But you know, I, I suppose all of these um, all of these job categories, are, including our own, I suppose, are all all uh, at risk. Um, but it was interesting to read about education. Yeah, no, I totally agree with you. I think uh, university in particular, because I know. Even China at the moment is putting um, is actually putting off people from students to say, you know, they prefer they prefer you guys don't go to Australians for tertiary education anymore for university. So how is that going to impact the our universities moving forward? They're definitely not going to be exactly the same as pre-COVID, given the political and economic circumstance changes. So, you know, yeah, I reckon that tertiary that education sector is mainly impacted because of the tertiary education universities. That's unfortunately taking a big hit and we're not going to see that change too quickly uh, in the foreseeable future. Mm. Potentially maybe India. India is another big market that could potentially uh, have um, have people wanting to come over for tertiary studies. I don't know. I'm, I'm just, this is just pure speculation um, in order for that education sector to be able to go back up to the pre-COVID level. But it's going to be something. So, Not this year. Not, not this, year. this year, that's for sure. So... All right. Well, yeah, that that is a bit of a grim news, but um, you know, I just thought it's worthwhile mentioning that. Um, you know, full articles you can certainly look online. Um, you know, CBA estimated JobKeeper uh, losses um, March twenty twenty one. These keywords would get you the article, and we'll probably get uh, Jazz to put the link up as well in our when we publish our um, our episodes on Facebook as well. So um, I want to finish off this week with a bit of high note. Uh, you know, we are we are seeing some uptick in stock markets, which is which is good. I think that uh, keeps for all those investors who's are uh, happy. Uh, in you know, we've got uh, money in the equity markets, um, but that's also a good opportunity because I, I was looking at it this morning. I was like, hmm, okay, so stock stock market's gone up and it's gone up to even higher now. Um, and John, I've listened to your podcast two weeks ago about how uh, how, how the um, how the ten year Treasury uh, bond yield has an impact on this. So I looked it up and I go, okay, ten year Treasury is going down. So um, I thought, you know, it's good segue to probably give you a, a, give our listeners a bit of update on what's currently happening with commodity, uh, in particular. Ten uh, year bond, Treasury bond, um, as well as oil prices. There's been some fluctuations and. I guess to a degree, you know, what can the investors expect based on the information that we have today? Mm. So the the U.S. stock markets hit an all-time high yesterday, and that's as the U.S. Treasury note uh, stabilised. So mm. it was up quite dramatically last week, and it's down slightly this week. Um, and it what it's reflecting is like a risk on appetite for yep. investors, and they're sort of um, piling into the risk assets. Uh, but I, you know, I mean, again, I, d- I don't know this for sure, but I, I can't imagine the stock market not continuing to go up. The really interesting thing is actually um, that a lot of a lot of the upside in the stock market seems to be driven by a surging oil price. And again, this is one of our three key indicators: the treasury yes. 
the oil price, the gold price. The, the oil price surged. Now, it was the news was that there was a, a Yemeni Houthi uh, rebel attack on the Saudi oil fields. Um, interestingly, they were using drones, so they sound like they, they bombed the Saudi oil fields using drones. So I didn't know that this ragtag group of uh, rebels had that sort of technology, but apparently they do. And that sent the oil price up. And then today there's some news about uh, Israel taking out a Syrian oil tanker, delivering to Iran. I, I'm sure I'm butchering it, but there was some sort of some news a, around that. Sure. Just sent the oil price up again, sort of two percent mm. So, um, so very very interesting. Now, making the oil price go up is definitely if you're nefarious. And of course, no one listening to this is. But getting the a higher higher oil price is definitely one way to get a higher overall stock market because two things follow the oil price. One is the energy sector, obviously, but the other part is the financial sector. The banks go up. So if you wanted to, you know, make the stock market go up, you create a red flag uh, event in the Middle East, and your stock market goes up. So it's there are two factors: the oil price and the treasury yield coming down a little bit. Um, the oil's definitely the sort of under the radar news event because don't forget in this time last year, March, it went to negative $35 a barrel and now it's getting close to $70 a barrel. So, uh, very, very interesting, um, what's happening to oil. So certainly watch the oil price stock, everything, you know, everything's going up, everything's going up. Has, uh, has gold made much movements this week? The precious metals got hit actually this week. They're, okay. they're flat, flat to down, and that's uh, driven by the uh, treasury yield. Uh, as the yield goes up, um, there's you know gold which doesn't pay dividend or doesn't have a yield usually gets uh, goes out of favour. Yeah, I still think that gold is a great inflation hedge, but um, but yeah, gold is gold and silver have been down in the last couple of months. So I guess from the investor's perspective, um, with a surging oil price and a stabilised uh, 10-year Treasury yield, uh, you can expect that the stock market will continue to rally to an even higher point in the next few weeks. That, that's what it looks like, yeah. yeah. I mean, keep your eye on the 10-year 10, 10 Treasury yield. If it spikes again, you'd mm. expect the stock market to go down. But if they're sort of stabilising that and the oil price continues to go up, yeah, that, that's bullish for, bullish for stocks. Oh, excellent, excellent. All right, very good. Um, anything else you want to cover, John? No, no. I think that's good. Unless you want to talk about Megan and, and Harry, I'm, I think where we're good. <laughs> no, we'll leave our listeners Another to discover time. that ourselves. That ourselves. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure they don't want to. They don't want to listen to two men who uh, doesn't know what they're talking about in terms of getting into the uh, <laughs> all that. Um, anyway, so that's good. Um, another week um, and another episode. Uh, I guess for our listeners who actually missed that episode that Jazz and John talks about, um, you know, the, the, the three key indicators on actually valuing the current market, whether it's overpriced or not essentially what we said, 10-year treasury bond, oil, and gold. Um, you can check out the full episode about two weeks ago, I think it was. Um, yeah, where, um, where they, they, John's obviously gone into very, very, in very lot detail in this. So definitely check it out. Um, but apart from that, look, um, thank you again for listening. Your support is always our, um, our um, 
uh, our motivation to do more episodes and content and if, again if you guys got any feedback about what you like us to talk about anything else you like us to add in um, whether that's talk about Megan and Harry well that's a separate question um, <laughs> but we're open to all feedbacks uh, you know just drop us an email at sparkyourfirepodcast at gmail.com otherwise stay safe and uh, we'll see you guys again in next week's Friday wrap beautiful done except let me stop it